Welcome to another episode of the All of Life podcast. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne, and today I have the privilege of sitting with our theologian in residence, Dr. Michael Allen. How are we doing today? I'm doing great. Good to be with you again, Nate. I know. it's It's been too long. I, I'm, the last one I remember is maybe summer reading, but I know we did we did something on Exodus at some point. We did a couple on Exodus, but it's been a couple months at least. It's been a couple months, yeah. but we are gearing up for our Romans series, which is starting... Uh, as people are listening to this, it's going to be starting this coming Sunday. Uh, you get the privilege of kicking us off, mm-hmm. preaching from Romans 9. Mm-hmm. I know that's everyone's favorite chapter in Romans, right? And on a family worship Sunday. Oh, look at everything just comes together. Yeah. Uh, we're kicking off Romans Bible study on Sunday, so I get to uh, have some discussion about the first part of Romans. You get to preach from it. Uh, but before we before we even talk about Romans 9, we should probably, since it's been almost... Almost, well, it hasn't been a whole year, but it's been a long time since eight we, months, maybe eight months. Yeah. Um, why don't we start with kind of a recap of Romans one through eight that we did last spring? Um, and you were suggesting, I think this is a great idea that we, we kind of talk about how Romans has been received at different points in church history, the impact that it's made and kind of that'll set us up for this recap. Yeah. You know, I mean, all of God's word. We know it, it doesn't return void. Mm-hmm. We're, we're told that it does something. It accomplishes its end. But it's often helpful to know what have been those purposes, what have been ways in which God has used different parts of the Bible to different effects so that we can gauge our expectations, we can prayerfully come to it uh, in a way that's, that's not simply based on our week or our sense of, of where things are with ourselves or the world, but, but that also is shaped by what God's been doing um, and how that might also inform us. And so Romans is just this remarkable part of Holy Scripture that has, in different settings with very different people and in different cultural contexts, has again and again sparked new life and brought about hope uh, in ways that, that you really couldn't have expected. Uh, you think... In the late fourth century, uh, someone who now is famous to us as a a great Christian thinker and leader, Augustine of Hippo, uh, he early on was someone who had basically walked away from his mother's faith Mm -hmm. um, for a number of reasons. He's unimpressed with the Bible. Uh, He's disinterested in the Christian way of life, the, the sexual ethic in particular. And there are a number of things God uses to convert or call Augustine back to himself and to bring about his conversion and salvation. And Romans plays a crucial role. It's really the final kill shot in the story that Augustine narrates in his confessions where God's been doing many things to draw him back to him, but eventually Augustine hears someone say, take up and read, and he grabs the manuscript nearest to him, and it's Romans 13, and he he reads that he ought to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no allowance for the flesh, and then and there for the first time, he believes that following Christ, putting him on, and making no allowance for the flesh, which Augustine perceives to be his lustful desire for sexual excess, uh, that that's a good thing, that that kind of self-denial and and sexual self-control is life-giving, mm. not death-dealing. And so Romans 13 is just remarkably powerful in being the, the verse that finally brings him from death to life in Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
Um, there are other stories, though, very different. I mean, a millennium later, Martin Luther uh, is going to tell of how what leads to reformational change in early modern Europe is, among other things, his reading of Paul's letter to the Romans and his understanding that uh, God is a God who's a gracious father, and that's revealed in that you know, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. And Romans for Luther really describes this new way to perceive human life and the nature of the gospel. One that, again, isn't about a God who's angry and, and waiting to condemn you, but a God who's gracious and fatherly and provides mercy and steadfast love. Mm. Yeah, those are two, uh, those are two really significant stories. I think a lot of people maybe would have thought of Luther as an example. The Augustine one, I think if you haven't read his Confessions, you won't be aware of that passage that you, you draw out there or how pivotal it was for his conversion. Yeah, and there, there are other individual stories near to our time. I mean, we could think of John Wesley, the, the great pastor and organizer and founder eventually of the Methodist movement. And he grows up in a a very religious setting. He's well-trained and churched, but he walks into a chapel, he hears a sermon on Romans 1, and he describes how then and there he's finally struck to the heart. His mm. heart is, as he puts it, strangely warmed by hearing of God's grace and mercy. And something beneath the superficial level of religious conformity now really reaches to the depths of him. Yeah. Um, or in the 20th century, Karl Barth spends years in uh, the wake of the First World War writing a commentary on this letter. And when it's released, it's described as a, a bomb on the playground of theologians because it, unlike the other religious talk from European Christian leaders, it reminds us of our need not for a fix, not for a help, not for a playbook, but for a miracle from on high. And Romans really represents this, this promise that God provides nothing less than resurrection grace for us. Yeah. I, I wonder, this is, this is just me being curious right here, because I'm aware of kind of the narrative around somebody like Karl Barth, but the names we've mentioned so far, Augustine, Luther, Wesley, are, are known by most people, um, whether or not they've done a lot of theological reading. But it feels like Karl Barth is one of those people that, like, you've heard of him maybe, Definitely extremely influential through the 20th century, uh, but is not someone that people would have really interacted with or know much about. Yeah, and one of the most significant 20th century theologians, um, someone who begins as what you could call a progressive liberal, somebody who really believes Christianity and wider culture are really joined at the hip. And in the wake of this world war, that just doesn't seem to be working. The world is not getting better. Mm. And he turns to the Bible, the strange new world of the Bible, and in particular to Paul's writing to the Romans. And this seems to describe for him the nature of our suffering in a sinful world and state and the need for something altogether different. And, of course, Bart doesn't tease that out in every way, in a way that Wesley... Luther or Augustine would all agree. They, they would disagree on many things, but mm. those are four different examples of one great figure wrestling with, with sexual um, appetites, one wrestling with uh, a medieval sense that, that God can't be placated, one wrestling with, a, you might say, a pharisaical 
religious conformism mm -hmm. and the last wrestling really with kind of secular optimism and the despair that hits when it doesn't deliver the goods. And in each case, those different Christian leaders from around the world in different circumstances all found hope in what God said to the Romans through Paul. Yeah. And even as you, you lay it out like that and kind of give the categories that they're dealing with, it's like, that's kind of the same categories we've got around today. They're not necessarily, oh, that was just back then that people had to deal with stuff like that. It's like, no, those are, those are the pressing issues of our day as well. Yeah, those, I think you're exactly right. Those continue to each be pertinent in our own day um, in a whole slew of different ways. And we can learn from the way that those stories played out. And we'll probably hear of many others as well, I would imagine, along the way as we study these next few months. Yeah, that's for sure. So, you know, can, with that kind of historical context, it's just talking about how Romans is impacted. And, you know, we, we've decided, uh, I remember early on in some of the discussions about preaching at, at New City, you know, we, we alternate back and forth between new in the spring, old in the fall. Um, and it, at one point, I think we, we talked about, well, we could do Romans in one spring series. But the more we thought about it, we were like, but it's Romans and it's, we're probably not going to come back to it anytime soon. So why wouldn't we really try to linger in this text as long as we can? And so split it into one through eight, one year, do nine through 16 the next year. And really, you know, there, we really can't avoid any of the issues Romans gets into because we're we're going uh, at such a pace, such a slow pace. I mean, we're not going at like a John Piper pace where we're going to take nine years to <laughs> get through it or however long he right. did. But, um, and so let's, let's look back a little bit. Let's kind of go through one through eight, maybe mm -hmm. beat by beat, just to kind of catch people right. up to speed as they're getting ready for Sunday. We're going to jump into Romans nine. Yeah. And so much really happens in those first eight chapters. We can we can hit just the highlights and maybe point to a thread, sort of a, an argumentative scope and sequence that mm. kind of shaped the text. And, and we'd encourage folks to go back to previous episodes where there's spots that, that suddenly their interest is piqued. They could hear a sermon or a Bible study or one of our podcast discussions. So Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he's been commissioned and sent by Christ the risen Christ, to go about and to be an apostle to the Gentiles in particular. And Romans is one of his later works where he's looking toward the end of his ministry. Uh, we know in Acts 28 that eventually uh, the gospel spreading reaches, you might say, its symbolic end mm. in this first century as it finally makes it to Rome. Acts 1.8 had told of how the gospel's going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Acts 28 paradigmatically interprets the ends of the earth as Paul finally reaching Rome and being capable of, of proclaiming the good news there. And at the end of his life, we see uh, this word that's being sent to the church there. Um, there are a number of things going on, and as we get toward the end of the epistle, we'll, we'll have some discussions about quite what what Paul's practically asking for mm. uh, in terms of support and, and so forth. But uh, he really does, in a number of ways, lay out what they need to know. He says in Romans 1.5 that he has a ministry uh, to the Gentiles to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And so 
He needs to convey that which they're to believe, what their faith is to be in, and he needs to lay out what obedience that springs from that faith would look like. Mm. And uh, we see in so many ways he patiently and beautifully does both. So right, right off the bat in chapter one, there's some of the most famous verses uh, that have been so influential in the lives of people like Luther or Wesley, where, for instance, in, in verses 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it's written the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And so we've got these themes that, that are going to be developed, this idea of, of the good news going first to the Jews, but then also coming to the Gentiles, of it uh, involving salvation, of it coming by faith, and of that involving righteousness or mm. justice. And really those four themes are all going to keep reappearing as we work our way through one to eight, and eventually, as we see, parts of, of nine to 16 as well. Yeah, it's almost like it, it, one 16 and 17 is almost like his thesis statement to some degree. And so he's sort of setting out everything he's going to talk about in, in minute form. And then the argument itself starts in 18, or verse, verse 18 of chapter one. Yeah, and, and we, you know, we explored in so many ways last year, looking from 118 all the way really through chapter three, almost, mm. almost through the bulk of chapter three, the way in which he describes the dilemma or the problem uh, that we need salvation uh, precisely because there is a, a great dilemma brought about by our sin and the death and the guilt that ensue. And in so many ways, uh, Paul here describes how sin and death are a reality that that affect not just Jews, but Gentiles, mm-hmm. um, both those in and outside the covenant people of God. And uh, he eventually in chapter three is going to start taking a, a bunch of quotations from the Psalms, especially to describe the idea that, that there is no one who has uh, gone unaffected. All of us are in fact actually suffering under sin and death. We all bear guilt and corruption. And so there is this just radical description of the plight that needs a solution. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets to the, you know, even the, the verse that everyone knows if they learn, uh, you know, gospel presentations like the Romans road, you, you get to that, uh, Romans three twenty three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of, he, he really, what is it? By the end of 26, it's kind of, that's like the pivot point in some ways. Three, 321 through 31 is kind of the pivot from plight to moving towards solution, but then we still have to take a detour in chapter four. It's not a, not a really a detour, but we got to talk about Abraham and use yeah. Abraham's faith from Genesis to explain some things. Yeah, and that's really where in, at the end of chapter three and then in chapter four with the Abraham story, these other two concepts come in. So as he talks about salvation... He's going to talk about righteousness, and he's going to talk about faith. And mm-hmm. so he talks about righteousness at the end of chapter 3, and that the real dilemma is this. God being God, God can't just 
you know, wink at sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, God being God is just and righteous and holy, and we wouldn't want God to be otherwise, but we do want God not to damn us. And so the, the dilemma is that God needs to righteously somehow act so that grace can be shown to the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. And, and the remarkable mystery of not just the incarnation, but the atoning work of Jesus Christ is that, as it says there at the end of chapter three, uh, the just God can also be the justifier of the ungodly. Mm. Um, and that that's the real dilemma that the atonement addresses. Um, and so here that, that, that key term righteousness or justice, which appears so often through these first five chapters, um, it really gets unpacked and the gospel is shown to be a just mercy that God offers. Yeah. And we should, this is maybe a great place to make this note too, for people that, and we don't want to get too nerdy with Greek and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, but right, we're, righteous, we're talking about righteousness and justice as if they're synonymous. And the reason we're kind of able to do that is because the, the Greek words are very closely related in a way that's not obvious when you're yeah. reading it in English. Yeah. In fact, through here, it's, it's the same term just rendered for variety's sake mm-hmm. um, in a way that makes it, it literarily palatable, but sometimes can can lead us away from realizing how central that theme is, Yeah, particularly in those first five chapters. And then chapter four, which you were mentioning, the Abraham story, that's where the theme of faith comes in. Mm. And, and faith plays this role, a surprising role, because of all the things that gods might expect or demand of their followers or of those that they're going to reward, faith would not seem to be the most promising or socially useful one. Uh, it's not like saying the most apt get rewarded or the most accomplished or the, the best bred um, folks of, of the right tribe or the right class. Uh, faith is, is, is totally different. And yet it's Abraham and his faith that justify. Um, and so God shows mercy in a way that really runs against the social conventions of our world and against the way other religious deities offer favor and reward. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, he has to go all the way back to Abraham really to get that example in the old Testament. Cause he's getting back before the giving of the law before there's these clear obligations. And Abraham is, he's really, he's hearing from God and he's taking steps of faith all throughout Genesis. And sometimes he stumbles and falls, but he really is illustrating this. Um, he's, you can see he's trying to figure things out. Like it, it, I don't, I'm probably not explaining that really well, but there, there's a sense in which if you look at Abraham's story, he does some really boneheaded stuff. Yep. Right. He's not bad you, dater, you do bad not, husband. Yeah, you yeah. do not want to follow his example right. in terms of what he does, right. but in terms of the fact that he's trusting that God's going to come through on his promises. You're like, well, he is walking by faith in that sense. Yeah. So he's like an example in, the way that Paul is using him. He's not an example of like, well, I should look to him for advice on family life. It's like, yeah, he's a great pilgrim example of somebody who's on a journey with God and obedient, obedient, even in faith and repentance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and last year we talked to great friend, brilliant scholar, Jonathan Leinbaugh, who, who showed us the way in which Paul is telling the Abraham story in a way that other Jewish teachers of his age weren't. Hmm. And he's emphasizing not Abraham's best moments, like 
his willingness to offer the child of the promise in Genesis 22. But Paul says Abraham's justified simply when he believes, Genesis 15, 6. And so God offers justification by faith alone. And, and Paul's trying to, to show that there's a particular sequence to the story of Abraham. Now, that faith's not alone. It leads to change, mm-hmm. transformation, radical obedience. There, there are moments we should try and imitate in the yeah. Abraham story, um, at least analogously. And, and so we do see great growth and remarkable change and, and wonderful moments. But, but forgiveness and justification come early, and they come by faith alone. Paul wants to emphasize that. So this is where Luther and others get this radical rooting in, in Romans 3 through 5 of the idea that we're justified not by works, but by faith alone. Yeah. So that's, and you mentioned the Linebaugh podcast, and so we'll just we'll bookmark it here that if people want a deeper dive on Romans 1, we did a podcast, you and I did a podcast on that. Deeper dive on 3 and 4, we've got the Linebaugh episode. And so it, segmentally, we could say Romans 1 through 4 kind of works as a unit, and then move us into, let's move into five through eight, which was yeah. the, the unit we were in. Yeah. And, and we really do pivot as we move, especially into six, seven and eight there. Um, but even to some extent in five, we, we start to pivot to the change that comes, not just the idea that we're just before God, but that we're being changed and conformed to be like God in mm. Jesus Christ and by his spirit. And, and so if, if Romans begins with talk of sin and justification in Christ, it moves to talk about death and sanctification by the Spirit. And that's really what we see in these next chapters. Yeah, um, It's not easy, it's not simple, it's not mm-hmm. pretty. We see that you know there are, there are passages that are going to talk about how even the sanctified person, like Abraham, continues to sin and to act in ways they don't want to act, but they also do choose to act Mm -hmm. and they can't blame it on others. And so there's this conflict, there's this divided character of their will and and even of their heart. See that in Romans seven most powerfully. Um, And we see that's not unique to our heart. Romans eight talks about the cosmos, the creation, the very world groans. And so we we still live in this day and age, even this side of, of Jesus coming where Grace has not yet brought us to glory. Yeah, you're, yeah, we're thinking of that uh, that section in Romans eight eighteen, talking about the present sufferings, the cosmos groaning, really leading up to his conclusion in that little section, which is the verse people a lot of people know. We know all things work together for the good of those who love God, and then we have the thirty one through thirty nine kind of closing. Uh, what can separate us from this right. love of God? And. It's an amazing and comforting word. There's a reason that those of us who make pastoral visits, this is the go-to passage for the bedside conversation, mm-hmm. for the graveside. Uh, and yet, it's, you might say, sort of a backhanded gift. Uh, the fact that you need this is because those threats do continue to befall us. Yeah. Um, and so we, we will suffer disease. We will suffer division. We will suffer disappointment. We will suffer death, and we need to be reminded that brutal, uh, raw, gruesome as those things are, um, they can't do what ultimately 
would threaten us. They can't separate us from God's love in Christ. And so, uh, you know, that both sets our expectations for this life as well as gives us hope that we can bear up in God's grace and journey faithfully through this life. Yeah. And I, so I think a lot of people might experience this, and this, I'm going to use this as a way to sort of close us out here, set us up for our next episode. I feel a lot of people can experience what you were just talking about in this, this sort of climactic po- portion of Romans 8, and it feels almost more natural for Paul to go, you know, neither height nor depth will separate us from the love of God. He's filled us up with all of this rich theology to just jump straight to something like, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, in light of these mercies, I urge you. And then he moves into his practical section and it gives it that sort of like same breakdown as Ephesians or Colossians where it's doctrine, practice, doctrine, practice. But instead, he, it feels like he takes a left turn and then all of a sudden he's going to start talking about Israel. Mm-hmm. And for some people, I think that could feel like he's this is an ultimate rabbit trail here, Paul. Like we, you know, <laughs> yeah. we take some twists and turns, but now we're going to spend three chapters talking about Israel just out of nowhere. Um, but I think you and I would both say that's not really what's going on, but I wanted to just throw that out there as a, this might feel like what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why it'll be important as we're picking up with Romans nine to realize there is all this momentum already as he's talking about what we put our faith in, um, the ways in which God has justified, the way in which God has sanctified, the way in which God has given us a word of hope and assurance. Um, but at the end of that word of hope and assurance, there's still this acknowledgement of all those threats. The world isn't just roses mm-hmm. and Paul isn't Pollyannish. He's not wearing rose colored glasses and, and Romans nine to 11 is a willingness. You might say to pivot, to turn and to face what might seem to be the challenge, the criticism that this is all too good to be true yeah. and that this can really be trusted, that we could put our faith in this. Uh, and he's going to do that before he really turns to address what's the nature of obedience that flows from this faith. First, he really wants to get to the bottom of, can we really trust these wonderful things that God purportedly is doing? Yeah. And I, I'll, I'll leave this as kind of the final note before we wrap up. But is there, there may be a sense in which Paul's answering a very obvious objection but it doesn't readily occur to us as much because we don't have the Old Testament story looming so large in our, in our minds as we're reading Romans. Yeah, and, and it's an objection that's based on things that are happening in his day that we simply assume. Mm. Um, it's an objection based on the fact that Paul is one of the few ethnic Jews who seemed to have embraced the Jewish Messiah. Mm-hmm. And given that God had made promises for his perpetual favor to be upon Israel, that raises a question not just about Israel's faithfulness, but it raises a deeper, more troubling question about the God of Israel's faithfulness. Right? Is yeah. he proven to be a, a failed politician? Mm. And should we write him off like we write off so many others who made big promises they couldn't deliver. Yeah, yeah. And Paul wants to take that seriously. Yeah. Um, so we'll explore that as we, we think ahead in a later episode. Yeah, that sounds good. So we'll just we'll say here, we're starting Romans 9 on Sunday morning. You're preaching. I'm teaching in Romans Bible study. 
encourage folks to come out. I mean, they should come anyways, but get excited. We're going we're gonna to do some theology with uh, Romans 9 through 11. And next week, they can tune in uh, to the same feed to hear a little bit of a big picture overview of 9 through 11. And we'll pick up right where we just left off here. Fabulous. Thank you.